0: Well, we're continuing to walk through the gospel according to Matthew. If you're using one of our Bibles there in the chairs, which you'll want one, it's page 782. And this week, as we're nearing the end of the final week of Jesus and nearing the end of the life of Jesus, we're going to see something that Jesus said back in chapter 16, graphically illustrated as true. Let me just read from chapter 16, we'll be in 26. But remember what Jesus said in chapter 16, verse 25, he said, whoever would save his life we'll lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul or what shall a man give in return for his soul we're in chapter 26 and we're in the last week of the ministry of Jesus remember that this final week started way back in Matthew chapter 21 verse 1 it's been a long week. Let's consider 26, 69 to 75. And there'll be four shifts in the narrative here. First, Peter afraid. Second, Jesus bound. Third, Judas hung. And fourth, Pilate amazed. So, first, Peter afraid. Look again with me at verses 69 to 75. have the trial of Jesus. Now we have the trial of Peter who had been following from behind. We saw that. And this young servant girl recognizes him and he accuses Peter of being with Jesus. And it literally says one. ESV here just says a servant girl, but there's a word for a and there's a word for one. And it uses the word one. And the point is she's all alone. This little young girl, probably a teenager, was no threat to Peter whatsoever. And yet Peter straight up lies I don't know what you're talking about. And he tries to bell. So he moves a little further out, but the Spirit's not going to let him go. This man's being haunted by the Holy Ghost. And yet another servant girl, these servant girls are observant, aren't they? Another one recognizes him. And Peter denies Jesus again, but this time with an oath. He says, I don't know the man. How tragic. By the way, You know, sometimes people will say that Christianity is all man-made religion, just made up usually to say the Roman Catholic Church made it up. If you're making up a religion, you don't include this kind of stuff, especially if it was a Roman Catholic Church, right? Because according to their view, they say Peter was the first pope. You don't have your pope deny your Messiah three times. If you're making this stuff up, you paint him in a little bit better light, but here it is true because it's history. Christian's a historical faith. And so it includes all the flaws, even though some teachers in the church have been embarrassed by this. In fact, two different teachers in the one church fathers in the first few hundred years, Hillary and Ambrose, they tried to make Peter look good. And so they said, no, Peter said, I don't know the man, but he didn't mean he didn't know Jesus. He was actually throwing down a little theological, you know, gauntlet. He's saying, He's not a man. I don't know the man Christ. I know the God Christ. And they try to exonerate Peter. Well, that just won't work. The Bible makes no bones about the fallenness of even its greatest leaders. Just think about Abraham. Abraham, he was a coward and a liar and threw his wife under the bus. He's the father of our faith. What about David? David was an adulterer and a murderer. And here we have Peter, one of the greatest leaders of the early church, and he denies Christ three times. The best of men are men at best. It's because the Christian faith is not built on men. The Christian faith is built on the God-man, Jesus Christ. Who came to save? Not people who have it all together. He didn't come to save strong leaders. He came to save sinners. Sinners who need grace, amazing grace. It saved a wretch like me. See, Christianity is for wretches. Even leaders are the wretches that need grace. Now, Peter fails here, and Peter fails bad. Peter is moving further and further away from Jesus, physically and spiritually. First, he has this evasion. I don't know what you're talking about. He has this verbal evasion and then physical evasion. He wants to get away. And friends, if you find yourself neglecting the presence of Jesus, It's going to be easier for you to sin and easier for you to fall away. Anyone who is deep in persistent sin quit pursuing the presence of God long ago. It's the first step. The first step of falling away, the first step of apostasy is neglecting to hear from him and to speak to him. Nearness to God and delight in disobedience, they can't live in the same heart. So Peter's moving away physically and spiritually. And not only does Peter sin by lying and denying Jesus, but he takes an oath. Remember what Jesus, the Lord, had taught about oaths back in the Sermon on the Mount? Let me just read Matthew chapter 5, verse 34, to remind you what his Lord had taught. Layers of disobedience here. Verse 34 of the Sermon on the Mount, I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God. So Peter takes an oath and denies his Lord. To the second servant girl, and then there were some that were standing there, and they approached Peter, and they say, "We know it's you. Listen, we can tell by your accent. Galileans had this distinct accent; it was noticeable, especially in Jerusalem. It was very different dialect of Aramaic, and Judeans would often mock Galileans for the way they talked. I'm from Eula. I can resonate with that a bit. It's noticeable, and so they said, "Listen, we know who you are." And so Peter here calls down curses and swears that he doesn't know Jesus. Now, this, this verb here for curse, it requires an object. It's what we call a transitive verb. It needs an object. And the ESV actually adds here, It's not in the original. They add on himself, but that's not in the original. Maybe that's what your translation says. And so the idea here is Peter curses. Peter calls down curses, and there has to be an object. Who's he calling down curses on? Well, the ESV decides for us that it's on himself, but actually that doesn't make any sense. What would that even mean for Peter to call down curses on himself and deny Jesus? Most commentators now shockingly come to the conclusion that Peter is invoking curses on Jesus to disassociate himself from Jesus. I am not with that one. The NIV is better here. It says, then he began to call down curses and leaves it open. It's tragic. Immediately after this third denial, the rooster crows and the sound not only pierces Peter's ear, but his soul. And he remembers. He remembers what his Lord Look back at chapter 26, verse 31. Let me remind you. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Jesus was right. Jesus is a true prophet. And there's this crescendo in this story. And they're really on a couple levels. You have one with the number of accusers and with Peter's responses and with Peter's location. First, it's just a girl alone. And then it's a girl talking to a group. And then it's a group talking to Peter. And Peter first kind of evades and denies. And then he swears. And then he calls down a curse. And Peter recedes from the fireside to the door to the outside. There's this drift of deconstruction. Luke, Dr. Luke adds this detail that Matthew doesn't include. Luke 22, verse 60 says this. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. I imagine Peter never forgot that look the rest of his life. I was able to see where all this took place a few weeks ago in Israel. I want to show you a couple pictures. Maybe. There we go. So basically, any, any place that there was a site located, Rome's built massive cathedrals on top of it. But this, if you can see the top there, this is, I think, I'd be called the Catholic Church of St. Peter of the Rooster Crow. And so they built this because this would have been on top of the site where Caiaphas' house was. And so you have the, the art on the door there. You can go to the next one. There it is. Peter being confronted. Go to the next one. This is down below uh, Caiaphas' house. It actually would have been basically a massive refrigerator and the type of place that Jesus could have spent the night as he was bound. Let's go to the next one. So this is me, and behind me is original first-century pavement. I mean, you look down where they would have come. He would have been betrayed. He would have crossed the, he would have crossed the Kidron Valley and made it up this, this road, and that's original, uh, just a special, special place to see. You can go to the next one. There it is a little close-up. Next one. And then then put in this statue here with Peter at the fireside denying it. I don't know the man. And, of course, you got the rooster up top. That might be it. Is that it? Oh, there's a symbol of him being bound. Any others? That's later. We'll get that later. Notice notice what verse 75 says. Peter, remember Jesus' words. I just want to encourage some of you parents that have children who are no longer following the Lord. Children that you wish were following the Lord in a closer way. Take heart, take comfort, and use this passage as a prayer point. You have pounded home the word in so many ways, and churches have pounded home the words in those kids. And it's very possible that the Holy Spirit can cause a remembrance to your child of the words of Jesus, just like it happened here with Peter. Remembered. The words of Jesus. And we just saw Peter had strong resolve, didn't he? Until the heat of the moments. Talk to big game. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. He said beforehand, I'll never do it. They may all, I may even die. I'll never deny you. He thought that he stood tall. But he didn't take heed. And so we should pray. Whether it's trial, whether it's sickness, we should pray, God, would you strengthen us for the time of trial that we might stand and not fall? Strengthen our faith and our hope and our love so when the moment comes, we'll stand strong. Father, would you keep us? And what was it that caused Peter to fail, to sin so tragically? He feared man more than he feared God. Or better, he feared young servant girls more than he feared God. He had a divided heart. He didn't have a heart fully for the Lord. People had become more important, or the approval of people, or maybe it was safety, maybe it was comfort. Some lowercase g God had crept into his heart, and he was failing to do what Jesus called him to do, that is love him with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, you know, Peter doesn't show up in the Gospel of Matthew again. This is the last we hear Peter. But in chapter 28, and we'll mention the 11 disciples, and so we know from this gospel and the rest of the New Testament, Peter will have another chance. Listen, though, not that he deserves it. That's what mercy is. He denied the Lord. Not once, not twice, but three times. You remember what Jesus said? Go back to chapter 10, verse 33 of Matthew. Matthew 10, 33, but whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Peter had made an oath. He had tried to leave the Lord. He had denied him three times. And Jesus had warned, you deny me, I'm going to deny you. He had every right to say, you're done, Peter. But that's not the kind of Lord he is. He doesn't deserve grace, but he receives grace. John Calvin said this story teaches us those, teaches those who stand to take care and caution. And it encourages the fallen to trust and pardon. As we know, Peter goes on to become one of the greatest leaders in the early church. Here he needed to be humbled. An unbroken Peter would have been an unbearable Peter. And if you were here last week, we looked at Acts chapter 2. Not long after this, and Peter boldly proclaims Christ and calls the Jewish leadership to account. And says, this is on you, and you must repent, and 3,000 are saved. What happened? So you have Peter, scared of a little girl by himself, to boldly preaching the gospel and calling thousands to repentance. What happened? Well, two things happened. Number one, the empty tomb. Jesus was raised from the dead. And number two, Pentecost. The Spirit of God was poured on all the disciples, and he was boldly empowered to preach. That's what happened. Resurrection and Pentecost, and it changed Peter. From a coward to one of the boldest leaders we have, who ultimately gave his life, refused to be crucified because he wasn't worthy to be crucified like his Lord was, and so he was crucified upside down. Would go on to write Holy Scripture. First Peter, Second Peter. And he would say this, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you'll be blessed. Do not be afraid of people, Peter says, but in your heart, honor Christ as Lord and always be ready to give an answer to anyone for the hope you have. Oh, don't you wish how many times, you know how when you you have a confrontation and you blow it or you have some hard conversation and you blow it or whatever and you blow it and you just replay it in your mind, man, I should have said this or man, I should have, man, I shouldn't have said that. How many times did Peter man, if I could go back to that little servant girl. Having seen the empty tomb and being filled with the Spirit. God can use failures. In fact, church, God only uses failures. So Peter afraid. Second, Jesus bound. Look at chapter 27, verse 1 and 2. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death, and they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. So all the Jewish leaders, they take counsel together to put Jesus to death. What a tragic sentence. The Jewish leadership comes together and they take counsel to put to death their king. It's another allusion to Psalm chapter 2 which one is one of those really important royal psalms that says this why do the nations the pagans the gentiles why do the pagans rage and the people's plot in vain the kings of the earth Set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. It's where we get the word Christ, Christos. They, the pagans, take counsel together against the Christ, against Yahweh and his Christ. And they say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. In Psalm 2, this is about the pagans being against the people of God. And tragically and sadly and ironically now, the Jewish leadership has become the pagans and are counseling together to be against the Lord and his anointed here In the Gospel of Matthew, the Jewish leadership has become the pagan nations by denying their Christ. And they hand their Messiah over to the pagans. They hand their Messiah over to Roman leadership. But again, Jesus had prophesied, had promised that this very thing would happen, didn't he? Matthew chapter 20, verse 18. They didn't have ears to hear. But he said, see, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, the nations, the pagans, to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. So Israel hands Jesus over to Rome. And as we saw in chapter 24, sadly, in AD 70, Jesus will hand Israel over to Rome. Israel hands Jesus to Rome. The Lord would hand Israel to Rome. They bind him. They want him to look like a political criminal. He was bound that we might be freed. He was numbered with the transgressors. Delivered over to Pilate the governor. Did you know that for most of the last century or so, there's lots of people that thought Pontius Pilate was a made-up figure? Most people thought Pilate didn't exist. We had no historical record whatsoever of any Pontius Pilate except the Bible. That's all we had. And so people say, well, there was no Pontius Pilate. We have no Roman records of anything about Pontius Pilate. It was made up, put in this story, and so anything we have would be traced to this story. So Pontius Pilate wasn't a historical figure. That was just the norm until just about 60 years ago. There were these Italian excavators over at Caesarea by the sea, maritime, and they're they're excavating a theater, and they're looking at these stones, and they find on this stone, this massive piece of limestone that has an inscription. It was actually repurposed, and they discovered that it was a first century piece of limestone that was repurposed hundreds of years later just to be a step, and it's from, again, a secular source from the first century that said, I've got a stone, I got to see it at the Israel Museum. That's the picture. So there it is. That's the stone, and on it says Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea. And so now, all of a sudden, in 1961, we have this inscription that's found that constitutes the earliest surviving and only contemporary record of Pilate. I love how the Lord just waits for whatever reason in his own providence. 1961, let me just drop another piece of evidence that the Bible's true. Number three, Judas Hung. Judas hung. Chapter 27, verse 3. Then, when Judas' his betrayer saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What's that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. Judas sees that Jesus is condemned and it got real for him. He realizes what he's done and he's filled with remorse and he tries to return the blood money. You notice that emphasis on blood. Look again at verse 4. I've sinned, betraying innocent blood. Look at verse 6. It's not lawful to put them because it's blood money. Look at verse 8. It's called the field of blood. The blood bears with it responsibility. They're wanting to evade the blood, get rid of the blood. It's like Lady Macbeth. Blood guilt ultimately is going to drive him to despair. Maybe he remembers the curse of Deuteronomy 27. Those curses of the covenant. Cursed be anyone who takes a bribe to shed innocent blood. In the original, there's a very clear allusion to 2 Samuel 17. and Ahithophel, remember when he turned against Absalom and he went out and hanged himself? Very same language, like Ahithophel, Judas has joined the ranks of the traitors. And Judas doesn't go to God. And he doesn't go to Jesus. He goes to these Jewish leaders. This this is not genuine repentance. The word used here in verse three of changing his mind, that's what repentance means. It's a different word. It's not the word used in the rest of this gospel. It's not true repentance, or he wouldn't have committed suicide which breaks the sixth command and is ultimately a trusting in one's own work. Now, that's not to say that anyone who kills himself is not saved. It's not to say that, but it is to say that taking one's life is never God's will. God is the one who gives life and takes life away. So it's not genuine repentance. The chief priests and elders are of no help, are they? They don't care. They have what they need from Judas. Judas. Judas tries to go to them, tries to go to his pastors, and they say, what does that have to do with us? You deal with it. Well, in short, it has everything to do with you. If you're doing your job, you have the authority. You're supposed to be the shepherds of Israel. These aren't shepherds, as Ezekiel 34 condemned. These don't care about anything but their own agenda. Israel has become sheep without a shepherd. So you deal with it. Judas has lost all hope. He throws the money in the temple, and he goes and he hangs himself. It wasn't worth it. Money is an idol that destroys its worshipers. Never satisfied. And ultimately, it only takes, like all idols. And the blood money ends up in the temple, and now we know that that's where it belongs. The Jewish leadership has become blood stained. Flip back a couple chapters at chapter 23, verse 34. Jesus has already said this. In the indictment against the Jewish leadership, 23, verse 34, therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will crucify and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. The leadership has become bloodstained. Flip over to chapter 27, verse 24. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands Before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. In one of the most tragic verses in the whole gospel, all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Look at 27 verse 6. But the chief priest taking the pieces of silver said, it's not lawful to put them into the treasury since it's blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel. And they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. So the chief priests realize the law forbids the use of blood money towards the temple. They can't do that. Let's just pause and note the irony here. These leaders are worried about a small aspect of the law. After they've just counseled together to murder an innocent man. Murder the king. Look over at verse 59. Of chapter 26. These same people, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking... False testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. They're good with lying and they're good with murder, but you can't defile the temple. See, these pastors know the minutia of the law, but they've lost the purpose and plan of God. Of course, again, Jesus has already rebuked them for that. Matthew 23, 23 says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for you tithe. Mint and dill and cumin. The idea is that's their, that's, their, that's their herbs. They tie that of their herb rack. But you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. See the imagery there? You're so backwards. You've missed it. You've missed the big picture by majoring on the minors. They are scrupulously religious and anti-Christ. You know, for us, there is a way to know meticulous biblical details, yet lack the heart of God. As Watson put it, the devil baits his hook with religion. Religion. Well, these leaders, these religious leaders decide to buy a field. They want to bury. Remember, again, many foreigners would come to Jerusalem for Passover, and oftentimes people would die. What do you do with them? Uh, ju- burying practice are very important in Judaism, and so they bought a field, the field of blood, which was actually in the Valley of Hinnom, Gehenna, just south of Jerusalem, which in the Old Testament was the site of human sacrifice to Molech. And again, as we've seen so often in Matthew, this was to fulfill the Scripture. This was to fulfill the Scripture. This was to fulfill the Scripture. And here is another composite quotation of Jeremiah and Zechariah saying both of these visions are coming to fulfillment. And even in the midst of trials, God is directing history towards his purposes. So it's a sad story. Twelve disciples, Jesus Christ loses two out of twelve. Common pastoral motto and mantra even Jesus had a Judas. Even Jesus had a Judas. Peter and Judas betray their Lord. As one commentator puts it, the reader, that's us, is invited to choose between two models of how the man of God, person of God, behaves under pressure. The one who escapes death, but his spiritual reputation in tatters. And the one who will be killed only to live again in triumph. So the reader's reminded that anyone who finds their life will lose it. And anyone who loses their life... We'll find it. Again, we see the importance of repentance. That's the difference, isn't it? Repentance, which was the message right from the beginning of this gospel. John the Baptist preached in three two. Jesus preached in four seventeen. Repent. What's the main message of Jesus? Repent and believe the gospel for the kingdom of heaven is at his hand. What does the word mean? It means to change your mind, to drop your agenda, and take God's. Is to put yourself off the throne, put Christ on the throne. Is to turn from sin and turn to God. That's the difference. That's what Peter did. Peter's repentance was genuine. Judas's wasn't. You see the parallel? They both go out. They both went out. Look at 27, verse 5. Throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, went out, and hung himself. Then look at 26, 75. There at the end, after the rooster crows, Jesus went out, same words, and wept bitterly. Those are the differences. 2 Corinthians 7, 10. Godly sorrow. Brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. There's a godly sorrow and a worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is sorry, but usually sorrow for the consequences of their sin. Not sorry for sinning against God. And the way we know is the fruit. Does it lead to change or does it not? Fourth, Pilate amazed. Look at 27 verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, and not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. The Jewish leadership had done their part. They had declared him guilty. But it must be the Roman government that would actually implement The verdict. Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews, which is ironic since Pilate, in fact, had political authority over Judea. Are you the king of the Jews is the same thing as asking, are you the Christ, are you the Messiah? But interestingly, this label, king of the Jews, is only used by Gentiles. Magi use it in chapter 2, and we'll see it used two or three times, but only in mockery. Jesus says, yes, he answers in the affirmative, but he qualifies. He said, I am the king, but I'm not the, I'm not the kind of king you think. To Pilate, but to the chief priests and elders, he refuses to answer at all. And Pilate's frustrated. Can't you hear these accusations? Aren't you so eloquent? Are you going to say anything? And Jesus just remained silent, just like he did before in 2662. The high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What's it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent course we've seen multiple times this too is in fulfillment of scripture 700 years before christ isaiah had prophesied the suffering servant of isaiah 53 he was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces he was despised and we esteemed him not surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows yet we esteemed him stricken Smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So, we're looking at first century history here, but let's just ask why is all this happening? Jewish politics are involved, Roman politics are involved, but we learn from Isaiah 53, and we'll learn from the rest of this gospel that this innocent man being bound for execution is so much more than history, it's for our sins. It's for the redemption of the cosmos. We're looking at first century history, but it's history that has ramifications for all of life. And friend, it has ramifications for your life. We've seen it again and again. Jesus Christ demands decision. And so let me just ask you, have you made your decision? If you haven't come to Christ, he invites to do that. This death was all purposeful. It was in fulfillment of his plan. Again and again and again, and he came and he lived a perfect life and he died a death that you and I deserve because of our sin, but death couldn't hold him. He was raised from the dead and exalted at the right hand of God. And he's there now and he's summoning you and he's inviting you this morning. If you haven't trusted in Christ, turn to him. If you realize that you're a sinner, that's the first step is you've got to understand your need. Jesus has no invitation for someone who thinks they're fine. He says, I didn't come for those who are healthy. I came for the sick. And if the spirit gives us ears to ear, we're all sick. We all need help. We often talk about the ABCs of becoming a Christian. We admit, we believe, we confess. We admit, yes, I'm a sinner and I need salvation. I need forgiveness. That's me. I am not ready to stand before a holy God on my own. The second is believe. We believe that Jesus Christ is who he said he is. He's the Lord. He's the Savior. He died for you in our place. And then we confess, we tell somebody about the decision we made. Tell somebody publicly, tell somebody this morning, talk more with us. We would love to, and ultimately be baptized into a local church. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Judas tried and he lost it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return? for his soul.